Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. When there's a gold rush on, the thing to do is not to dig for gold. Instead, sell shovels to all the suckers who think they'll get rich digging in the dirt. This is not the story that Silicon Valley tells about itself. But this is one of the lessons that Corey Payne learns in his new book, Live, Work, 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 Die, a journey into the savage heart of Silicon Valley. In his analogy, the gold rush is the tech boom. Silicon Valley is, well, where it is in California— The shovel merchants are startup conferences, Airbnb hosts, even the tech companies themselves. And the suckers? That's us. The consumer turned hustler who falls for the siren call of the freelance gig economy, or even the promises of a free social network app that says it's not going to sell your data. And, of course, the worst suckers of all are the startup wannabes who flock to the Bay Area en masse, desperate for a slice of the venture capital pie. In 2015, Corey Payne became one of those suckers, moving to San Francisco at the height of the startup boom to chart the whole experience of pitching, living, and failing in the tech world, and then writing all about it. Thanks for joining us, Corey. Thanks for having me. So where did you get the idea to embed in Silicon Valley? It seems like kind of an odd proposition to disguise yourself as a startup entrepreneur. Well, I'm not sure I was disguised. I did tell everyone that I was writing a book and that I was working on a startup. Now, that last part wasn't really necessary to do the book, but I really wanted to get every aspect of the tech industry that I found interesting into the book and a more conventional journalistic approach of picking up single company or entrepreneur to follow uh, from a objective point of view might not have let me do that. So I decided if I do it myself, not only can I get a more personal sense of the emotions and, uh, you know, tactile and a sensory experience of what San Francisco is like in the tech boom, but also I can basically concoct any situation that I wasn't able to uncover as a journalist myself. So I wouldn't miss out on anything. Fair enough. So what was your strategy? What did you do? You landed in San Francisco and... Uh, Without enough planning. I mean, you know, some of the the first half of the book deals with the scramble for housing. And I think it's it's relevant because it's it's something that everybody in a major metropolitan area, especially 
cities where uh, the tech industry has taken a foothold, or as in San Francisco's case, taken over, is dealing with is uh, displacement in the housing market caused by rapidly rising rents. So that was my first struggle. And then whenever I had a little bit of stability, um, my strategy was essentially to crash every single party I could find <laughs> where the techies would be. So, I mean, one thing that's interesting is you have this taxonomy of, of almost all bros, basically, who work in tech. But fundamentally, you come to the conclusion that they are all kind of like drones. They think they're winning out working for a tech company that will buy them dinner if they work till nine that provides like an open bar. But in your view, they and even the guys who come up with a startup idea and work themselves to the bone are still beholden to like an upper class. Yeah. I mean, even for the most well-intentioned startup entrepreneurs, many of them are extremely naive about politics, economics, and they believe the mythology that we're all brought up with from birth in this country that, you know, you work hard, you have the right idea, and, you know, you too can strike it rich. Um, but there really is almost a caste structure in Silicon Valley, you know, and uh, venture capital runs the show, and they are the overlords, I guess, of Silicon Valley, and they're not really the people that you, that the movies get made about, you know. They might pop up as bit players, <laughs> but uh, it's very important for the functioning of these companies, for their labor pipeline, for their public image, that the focus be on the heroic lone entrepreneur who is brilliant but misunderstood and devises the perfect world-changing product in his dorm room or his parents' basement or garage uh, and comes from nothing and... and attains everything. I mean, that's the mythology that they want to promote. It's necessary to their business. And it's just really not how it works. <laughs> right, right. It's like the new American dream almost. But if you look at the actual numbers, it seems like the whole edifice of Silicon Valley would come crumbling down. You cite that 95% of startups fail. So that means 5% succeed. And that 60% of venture funds earnings come from 10% of investments, which means basically that almost half of their investments are total bunk and are losing money. Yeah. And they say that's okay because the ones that pay off pay off really big so that's the story but then look you know i did go and try to scratch beneath the surface of that claim a little bit and when you look at the numbers dealing with uh the question of digital ad fraud it's ubiquitous it's like um upwards of six billion dollars a year uh attributable to uh, botnets and click farms and very arcane and uh, sketchy uh, ways of faking um, ad impressions. Uh, it's like fake invoicing, essentially, but using a, a computer program to do it, or a really low-wage worker in a, in a third-world country. So the ad fraud is uh, essentially um, inflating the revenues of even the household name companies by, well, I, an unknown portion. But even if it's a couple of percentage points, let's say, uh, that could be the difference between a quarter where a major tech company hits its growth targets or doesn't. And if it doesn't, then investors start to go, well, why? And then they start to ask a lot of questions like this, like what are the numbers really based on? And if that happens too much, then Maybe they don't think they want to invest in your company anymore. Maybe they think their money is better placed elsewhere. And that's a serious risk for every major Silicon Valley company right now. Look what happened when uh, John Kerry, the Wall Street Journal reporter that revealed Theranos to be a fraud, 
took a quick look at that company. How come this company was already a massive success with all kinds of glowing press, not just in the tech press, which is corrupt, but in the mainstream press as well, and and prominent board members like Henry Kissinger? How come it got to that stage before a reporter or regulator or anybody really examined its product, examined its claims, held them up to scrutiny, asked for evidence? I think that Theranos isn't the only such company, assuming that we start looking at what's really going on and what's really behind the numbers of the tech industry. So, I mean, you just asked my next question, which is, why do you think it's taken so long? I think the answer to that is really complex. I mean, we could probably spend the rest of the interview talking (laughs) about it because, um, okay, for one, not everybody is technically inclined. Even many people that work for tech companies don't really understand not just the business model of their own companies, but certainly the the nuts and bolts on a programming level, software and hardware level. So that takes a lot of specialized knowledge that isn't quite widely held enough to audit the claims a tech company might be making. Another reason is that these are mostly American companies and uh, Americans tend to be optimistic. And they love, like we were talking about, they love that rags to riches story. They love the idea that um, we can innovate our way out of our problems, you know? Silicon Valley is very seductive in that it offers a completely apolitical, well, an ostensibly apolitical solution to so many problems we have, from climate change to, you know, dating to staying in touch with your friends to governance. I mean, government you know, like everybody else, uh, doesn't really understand this industry, is inclined to believe the claims and, and, and wants, you know, wants a piece of the action. Yeah. Well, I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that revolving door? Because that came through again and again from complacent tech press to journalists fawning over the latest gadget, thinking Yahoo News Desk might eventually be hired by Yahoo Corporate, to the guy who privatized the internet going over to work for tech companies. Yeah, I mean, that goes all the way back to the the beginning of the internet. I mean, I think it's important to remember that basically all of these companies are profiting from research that was financed by the public sector, by the government and the taxpayers over decades uh, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. We're talking about a military network that was eventually moved to the National Science Foundation, and there was a uh, NSF administrator named Stephen Wolf who decided uh, without consulting anyone that um, he was going to turn this network that was exclusively scientific and academic over to a few companies. Um, There was no public process, and we've put almost all the power in the hands of um, some very entitled, uh, very questionably informed, white, privileged men with limited perspectives who have demonstrated repeatedly that they can't manage these companies properly. I mean, they certainly can't protect our privacy. Uh, They're not interested in that. In fact, they make money by violating it and selling our data to, well, not just the highest bidder, I mean, but anybody who will pay. Um, Other examples, well, many of the the big names that, that talk about their heroic entrepreneurial story, it's important not to lose sight of the reality that they are government contractors. I mean, Amazon recently signed a contract to do the CIA's cloud computing, which raises a lot of really interesting questions about conflicts of interest. 
considering the extent of Bezos's holdings, uh, the amount of internet infrastructure that Amazon controls. Uh, when WikiLeaks was publishing some of its, um, well, questionably obtained, but otherwise newsworthy material, um, you know, Amazon made a unilateral decision to turn off its servers. And, um, you know, that's a lot of power. What, what informed that decision? They never really had to answer for it. And they make similar decisions, uh, you know, a thousand times a day that we never hear about. So there's not really any uh, government agency or, or democratic uh, representative body that I'm aware of that can exercise uh, regulatory authority or is even equipped to investigate these companies. Right. Or when they do, they get to it really late. I mean, there are a lot of examples in your book about of companies that are explicitly founded basically on trying to get around laws creatively or undermining, you know, unions. I mean, companies like Uber get a lot of flack um, for their CEO's flagrant behavior or like, you know, trying to break airport strikes. But I mean, their whole business model is kind of based on breaking the law. (laughs) Absolutely. It's not a big spoiler, but the common thread I identify of a successful tech startup is a willingness to break the law. And the, the idea is you make as much money as fast as you can, and then you hire however many lobbyists you need to hire to make sure that whatever you did to get that money is okay. Uh, and Uber, thank you, that was the example I was searching for of the revolving door. They got a big investment from Google, and the first thing they did with that money was to hire David Pluff to be not just their head of government relations, but basically PR. I mean, he plotted their global expansion strategy. And it's not an accident that they picked him. He was chief of staff, I think, uh, or senior advisor. I forget his exact title when he was in the Obama Dwight House. But uh, they hired someone that they knew would have currency with every Democratic Party politician in the country. So it was really genius move, albeit really dubious of Pluff to accept the job. His successor, Rachel Whetstone, was a very well-connected conservative politician from the UK. It's not an accident that they keep picking the right-hand men and women of the most powerful politicians in whatever country they're aiming at expanding in. Right. And you point out that shortly after Rachel Whetstone was hired, Uber opened in the UK. And that more significantly that the UK was one of a few, a relative few uh, countries in Europe that in around the world that did not immediately ban Uber. Their business model was illegal and arguably still is in many places, but they continue to operate, and and why? I mean, Silicon Valley illustrates in many ways how much power corporations have relative to government, and not just the federal government or state government or city government, but any form of government. Because even where Uber is illegal, it continues to operate, and essentially dares the government to come and try to shut it down. Well, that slides really easily into my next question, which is um, you've talked a bunch about how all of these tech companies sort of see themselves as apolitical, sort of an apolitical way to connect, you know, to solve problems. But um, in fact, you devote a significant portion of the book to pointing out how a lot of these tech entrepreneurs and bigwigs with a lot of money actually have very reactionary right wing politics. Yeah, I would say that I don't take it necessarily a scholarly approach because I'm not interested in doing a full um, dispassionate taxonomy of the politics of Silicon Valley. There is some diversity there. I mean, the rank and file, uh, particularly younger employees at companies like Google uh, were some of the, the largest 
basis of support for the Bernie Sanders candidacy in 2016. But what I was really interested in looking at was the, uh, frankly, fascist undercurrent in Silicon Valley. I mean, I think if you were to ask most people who knew anything about Silicon Valley, what are its politics, they would say liberal or libertarian. And, you know, the liberals are really libertarians there. I mean, in my experience, if you believe in the free market and you hate unions and you think pot is okay and that gay people should be able to get married, I, th I think that basically makes you libertarian, whatever you want to call yourself. Sorry. I mean, that's my diagnosis. Uh, but I was particularly interested in some of the more uh, underground and esoteric aspects of Silicon Valley political culture, which are now, I think, a lot more familiar to people than when I started reporting the book. I mean, very few people had heard the word alt-right when I started reporting on these um, some of these folks, one of whom um, I describe at length. His internet name is Mencius Moldbug. And he's a blogger, but his real name is Curtis Yarvin. And he promotes a broad category of ideas that I guess we would call the alt-right, but um, uh, more narrowly scientific racism, eugenics, some revisionist history about the Second World War. So you get whiffs of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, uh, misogynistic politics uh, under the banner of the red pill philosophy. It's really retrograde stuff. And um, and it is fascist in orientation, and it festered in Silicon Valley, perhaps more so than, than anywhere else. Uh, uh, this, these new forms of, of fascism and, and racist ideology, uh, the tech companies gave them a home and a platform. I mean, like I said, I was in newspapers. I've never worked in a newspaper where we would allow debates about, did the Holocaust happen? But these are the kind of things that were happening on Reddit, on other forums that major internet companies were providing platforms for, and uh, because of their, let's just say, libertarian free speech absolutism, they felt they had no responsibility to ensure that they didn't spread. Uh, but they did, and they spread very quickly, particularly among alienated, underemployed young men in this country who, um, you know, who are the backbone of the alt right. So anyway, back to this character, Moldbug. Uh, he has a startup that was invested in by uh, Facebook board member and venture capitalist Peter Thiel, one of the founders of PayPal. So I pointed out some connections, some financial connections between Thiel and Moldbug and just said, hey, you know, this blogger promotes slavery and isn't that interesting? And he thinks that uh, he thinks that government should be dissolved and that uh, the future of, of governance is corporate dictatorships. In their ideology, that would be more freedom because then citizens could choose their government like consumers. It, it's really facile stuff, but sadly popular. And um, some very powerful, wealthy people made sure that these ideas were promoted and they need to be held to account. Uh, I mean, Teal also owns a company called Palantir, which um, is a defense and intelligence contractor that is helping ICE deport undocumented people and is building profiles on all Americans using whatever data it can get its hands on and it's very efficient at that and i think there are questions that should be asked maybe on the floor of congress about how a company whose founder associates with fascists who espouse you know pro-slavery ideology who apologize for terrorists like anders brevik the oslo massacre perpetrator 
how, how somebody who associates with these people and, and funds them and allows them to spread their ideology is allowed to be in a position of owning a company that, that has this information on American people and a big contract with the government that would presumably require a security clearance. You know, I hope people who are in a position to get answers to those questions start asking them. We've got all the details on Corey Payne's book, Live, Work, 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 Die, on our episode page, along with links to his expose of Moldbug's connection to Peter Thiel and PayPal. Plus, the Wikipedia page that someone built just to keep track of how many laws Uber has broken in various countries. It's longer than the Wikipedia page on the taxi cab. We're back next week with the story of an enigmatic American quilt, which turns out to unlock a Pandora's box of the darkest chapters of our history. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.